Well, if you have a copy of God's Word, I'm going to ask you to go ahead and take it out. We've been in the book of 1 Peter now for several weeks. We're, I think, in week 7 of our journey through the letter of 1 Peter. So you probably already have a bookmark there or that little, uh, that little hangy thing in your Bible probably already marked there to go to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 18 through 25 this morning. Uh, I want to bring a couple of things to your attention as you're turning there before we look to our sermon today. Uh, one of those is if you're a guest with us today, and I've already met a couple of you who are visiting with us today, and we are glad to have you here. If you're a guest with us today, there's a connection card that is in the racks in front of you. If, you, if you're where you can reach one of those and take that and fill that out and just take that and put it in the offering plate in a little while, that'll just give us an idea of who you are and maybe give us an email or a phone number that we can call you and just thank you for visiting with us today. Thank you for being here. Also, we uh, recently did some, some branding and some graphic stuff, changed our logo and did some other kinds of different things. And as part of that, um, Jamie Early, our youth minister, uh, he was able to get some invite, some interesting little invite cards that we have uh, several hundred of that are available out in the lobby. And so they're these little circle cards. And I love this because it says on the front of it, we saved you a seat. And then on the back of it, it has some information about join us at Central Park Baptist Church and tells when our worship times are and things like that. So maybe that would be an opportunity for you to take one of those and give that to a, a friend or a co-worker. Or, or uh, maybe if you just want to do some, some subliminal um, witnessing and you just want to go stick it on somebody's desk at work or something and, 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 and kind of be a, a covert operative for the Lord, whatever works for you. Um, but uh, take some of those and use those as some invites. We're also going to be doing some Easter invites here pretty soon to remind people about inviting people to church during Easter time, and we'll be, we'll be giving those out real quickly, or not in, in a few weeks. Now, one of, the, one of the ministries that I'm involved with here in Morgan County that I have been privileged to be involved with for several years is known as the Samford Ministry Training Institute. Now that name sometimes, you know, automatically we think that means some kind of Bible school for ministers. It's not. It's, 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 a, it's an eight-week class every single semester, two times a semester, in which we basically just learn how to know God's Word better and what God's Word says about certain subjects. I'm teaching right now in the Ministry Training Institute. I'm teaching a class on biblical theology and systematic theology, and we have about three more weeks left in that class. The next class is going to launch on March the 24th, and it is going to be the person of the Holy Spirit. And I think it's a great class because the Holy Spirit is probably one of, the, one of those, it's, it's definitely the most misunderstood person of the Trinity. It's one of those things that we all know biblically that we've been indwelt by the Spirit. We know that the Spirit of God lives in us. But, but who is the Holy Spirit and, and what is His role in our life? And, and how do we function and live in, in connection with the Spirit? Well, this class will help you to learn more about who the Holy Spirit is and how you can live His purposes in your life. Uh, Dr., uh, Brother Wally Blackman, who's a pastor in Hartzell, will be teaching this particular class. It'll be on Tuesday nights from 6 to around 9 o'clock. It meets at the Morgan Baptist Association. There are some informational flyers that are going to be available for the next few weeks out in the lobby. And if you would like to just take a class, it's, it's, when, I, when, you, when we talk about class, don't get too worked up about it. It's not that hard. It's, Basically just reading one book and sitting around and discussing that together each Tuesday night. Uh, but if you're interested in that, we would love to have you be a part of the Sanford MTI program. You can pick up one of these. You can call me or text me and I'll, I'll tell you a little bit more about the class and how to get involved in that. Well, as David said, today we're going to be looking at the subject of suffering and specifically the topic of when seasons of suffering come. Not if 
we go through seasons of suffering, but when seasons of suffering come. We've been reading for the last several weeks through Paul's letter to the churches in Asia Minor, to the believers whom he calls sojourns and exiles in this world. As a matter of fact, two weeks ago we saw that term where, where he reminded us as Christians that because of our spiritual union with Jesus Christ, Christians are now citizens. We are, we are eternal citizens of the kingdom of God, but we are living in exile in a world that is not our true home, in a world that will not be our final destination. And because of this, Christians never actually feel at home in this world in our present state. As a matter of fact, the more comfortable we begin to feel at home in this world, the more dangerous we are spiritually because more we're moving away from our identity in Christ as followers of Jesus Christ. There's, there's always going to be this tension in the life of a believer that we, we live here in this world, we live in this, in this country and in this state and in this county, and, and we're residents here, and we pay taxes, and we go through all the things that residents of a, of a country do. But there's always going to be this tension between what we fundamentally believe and what we value as followers of Jesus Christ and the culture around us. And I think if you've been a follower of Jesus Christ for a number of years like me, you would probably say that that, that tension has gotten even more pronounced in recent years. That tension, that that struggle, that, that thing about, you know what, I, I, love, I love the place that I live, I love my community, I love my country, I love the people that, that I live in my neighborhood with, but as a follower of Jesus Christ, it's becoming harder and harder and harder to, to, to live with the values that God has placed in my heart and to live in alignment with the values of God's Word. It's becoming increasingly more difficult to do that in the country and in the culture that we live. And that's because this place is not our true home. It's our temporary place of dwelling until we reach our final destination. But the Apostle Peter does not call us as followers of Jesus Christ to withdraw from culture. He doesn't say that the solution to that tension is to just disconnect from the culture and, and to somehow or another live in isolation of, of the world around us. And he doesn't call us as followers of Jesus Christ to sit on the sidelines and bash lost people. And that's one of the things that I've seen happen as, as, as we live in this tension of this lost world. I've seen more and more followers of Jesus Christ who, who sit around spending more time complaining about the culture and bashing the culture around us than we do actually living in such a way to transform the culture around us. God's not honored by us being kind of those, if you remember the Muppet Show, any of you remember the Muppet Show when you were a kid? I remember that. I used to watch it every Saturday, right? And, and, and the two old curmudgeons that always sat up in the balcony in the Muppet Show and everything was never good enough, right? No matter what happened, it was always a complaint. And sometimes I feel like that's what the church is today. We're the two old curmudgeons sitting up there complaining about how bad things are instead of understanding that that's exactly why Jesus Christ has sent us here. We are sent into this world as agents of redemption to redeem the culture around us and to demonstrate the hope of the gospel in a world that has no true foundation for hope in it. That's the reason why we are called to be kingdom exiles with living hope. That's what Peter's whole theme of this letter is. Now last week we saw that one of the ways that we 
do that, one of the ways that we live as exiles with, with living hope is in how we respond when we find ourselves putting or the importance of Christian submission, specifically our submission to the authority of government and to the leaders that God has placed over us. We looked at, 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 at verses 13 through 17 last week and we saw about how as followers of Jesus Christ, we are called to live in submission to government and not just government, but all authority. Now today we're going to look at what that looks like as we continue to live lives of submission, not just in government, but specifically in the workplace and in the culture at large. And so here's the, here's the tension that we feel, because one of the things that we've noticed, and in, especially in probably the last 10 years, is we've noticed that for people who are followers of Jesus Christ, we, ha- we are being continually pushed to the margins of society and given less and less and less of a voice in the direction of our culture and in the direction of our nation. And so one of the ways that we've seen that is we've seen followers of Jesus Christ who have faced lawsuits because they refuse to participate in certain ceremonies or activities that they felt like violated their religious convictions. And yet because they owned a business or because they were proprietors of a business and they said, well, we're not going to, we're going to choose not to be a part of that. Um, those tenants, those people that, that wanted to take part in their business ended up suing them. It wasn't just enough to say no and move on down the line and find another business. They decided that you're somehow or another violating my civil rights and so I'm going to sue you. And we've started seeing Christian bakers and photographers and florists that are being sued for not participating in things that they felt like violated their religious convictions. Some of us have seen friends or even in our own life we've seen as we've tried to live with a sense of biblical ethic and a sense of biblical conviction, we've seen within our own workplaces where our values are not always affirmed. Not only are they not always affirmed, but, but sometimes we are, we are persecuted or we are marginalized specifically because we won't violate our religious convictions. We say, I'm not going to do that because that would be unethical or that would be against God's word. And because of that, maybe we're passed over for a job promotion. Or perhaps we're even given a pink slip and asked to go find another place to work. We've seen, in, in, especially within the university setting, we've seen it become increasingly more difficult over the last 25 years for a, a, a college-age student who, who has a relationship with Jesus Christ and who firmly believes the Bible to be the Word of God on a college campus. They are usually targets of of, of accusation and verbal, verbal abuse. And, and not only by their peers, but even sometimes by the very professors with whom they're taking classes. And so that brings the question to us, which is this. How are we as Christians supposed to respond when we find ourselves believing the truth of God's Word and when we understand God's desire for justice in this world but we find ourselves often the victims of injustice at the hands of those who don't know Christ and don't value Him. How are we as followers of Jesus Christ to respond when we want to live out what God's Word tells us and we believe inherently in a God of justice and yet we find ourselves being the victims of injustice and and being oftentimes 
ridiculed and marginalized by those who don't know Christ. How do we respond to that? Because this was the place that many of Peter's readers in the first century church found themselves. They found themselves the victims of injustice, wondering what do we do as the more we become followers of Jesus, the more we suffer persecution as a result of that. So I want us to read this text this morning, starting in verse 18, where Peter says, Servants... Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your soul. What we see in here is the reality of what we have to do as followers of Jesus Christ when seasons of suffering come. Now, contextually, as we we see this passage, again, he's talking about the role of submission in the Christian life. And we're going to continue to see this idea of submission that that as followers of Jesus Christ, God has placed authority structures in our life and we are called to be submissive to the authority structures that God has placed because as we submit to the authority that God has placed over us, we are submitting to God. And one of the things that we said last week was that when when a person has a problem with submission, they have a worship problem. That when they have a problem submitting to authority, it's often because they've placed themselves as God on their throne and they don't want to submit to anything other than what they want. And so submission is something that's built into the framework of society. We saw this with government and now he goes to slaves in the workplace. Now many of us get a little bit of tension here because it's easy to misinterpret this passage that Peter is saying here as some sort of endorsement of slavery or to d- dismiss it altogether as irrelevant in our contemporary culture because, because we don't have slavery as an institution in our culture. But we need to understand a couple of things here. First of all, when, when, when Peter is telling servants to be submissive to their master, this is not necessarily an endorsement of slavery as an institution. And it also is something we need to understand that that slavery in the first century Roman culture was very different than what many of us understand historically of slavery, especially within our own country. Uh, Slaves in the first century were usually a a segment of society that were were born into that lot in life. And because of that, they, they were often dependent upon other people to provide them with opportunities for employment because they didn't have the rights themselves. And so there was a much more congenial relationship between most masters and slaves in the first century than what we have seen displayed in our own country. Many of these slaves were not forcefully taken from their homes and made slaves in in Rome. They, They willingly submitted themselves to somebody else in order to be able to provide for their family. 
But even contextually here, what he's talking about and how it applies to us is in specifically in relationship to the way that we operate within the workforce as followers of Jesus Christ. When, when, we, when we go to a job, we, we, we indenture ourselves to that organization or that employer in order to work for them and in order to be compensated for the job that we do. And in doing that, we need to understand that how we do that and how we submit to the authority of, of, our, of our employer a lot of times is a reflection of our relationship with God. Peter, in essence, is saying here this, Be respectful of all in authority, not only to those who are good to us, but to those who are unjust to us. He, he tells the, the slaves here, don't just be submissive to a good master, to one who is good and benevolent and takes good care of you. It's easy to be submissive to those people. It's easy to be submissive to a boss who's a follower of Jesus Christ and who shares our biblical convictions. It's easy to submit to, to someone who's a supervisor or a manager over us when, when, when they understand what we believe and respect what we believe, even if they disbelieve, don't believe what we believe, but they respect it and they treat us with respect and, and justice. It's easy to submit to them. But whenever we find ourselves working under someone or working in a place where there is no sense of justice and there is no sense of respect for what we value, sometimes there's a tension there. And what Peter is saying is that we need to be respectful of all in authority, not only to those who are good to us, but to those who are unjust. And then he opens up this topic of injustice. And so we're going to talk about four truths here that I want us to see from God's Word, specifically about suffering. Now, to clarify, the suffering that Peter has in mind here is not what we often refer to in Western culture as suffering. You see, we, say, we, we think of physical trials as, a, as an example of suffering. So we, we go through cancer or we go through a, a real difficult physical ailment. And there is certainly physical suffering that we have to endure as followers of Jesus Christ. That's part of living in temporal bodies, in broken bodies in the midst of a broken and fallen world. That's just the natural process of aging and decay that our bodies go through. And it's going to come. And there are going to be seasons of physical suffering in our life. There, there also are, are seasons of mental suffering that we may go through. Maybe we may go through a period of depression, or maybe we may go through a period of anxiety or, or, or mental anguish in our life. And those are certainly trials, and, and they are forms of suffering. But that's not the kind of suffering that Peter is referring to here when he talks about the sufferings of Christ. The suffering that he's referring to here specifically is suffering for being a believer in Jesus Christ. It's suffering, marginalization, persecution, ridicule, all the things that come with being a follower of Jesus Christ in a fallen culture. That's the kind of suffering that he's talking about. And what do we do when those seasons of suffering come? So first of all, I want us to see the summons of the believer to suffer. The summons to suffer. We see this in verse 21. Verse 21 is really kind of the, the critical hinge that this whole passage of Scripture revolves around. Look at verse 21. Actually, let's, let's back up for a second to verse 20 when it says, When you do good and suffer for it and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. What? You've been called to suffer injustice. 
Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Now let's stop for a second. And let's reflect upon what Peter is saying there. Let's pump the brakes and let's say, what is Peter talking about here? Now Peter is not saying here that suffering, in this case ridicule, mischaracterization, persecution, he is not saying that suffering is a good thing. When he says that it's a gracious thing, he's not saying it's a good thing. He's not saying that when Christians are sued because they live out their Christian faith, or when a Christian student who voices his or her convictions on a college campus is ridiculed by a teacher, or when your neighbor spews venomous hate at you because you claim to believe in Jesus and you believe that the Bible is true, he is not saying that these are good things. He's not saying that suffering, ridicule, and persecution is a good thing. He is saying that God calls us as believers to face hatred, verbal assault, and sometimes even more specifically because we choose to do what is good and live for God in a fallen world. Now let me say that again. God does call us as believers to sometimes be the target of hatred, and verbal assault, and even in some cases, much more, specifically because we as followers of Jesus Christ choose to do good and live for Him in a fallen world. That's what this phrase means when he says, For to this you have been called. Do you see that? There's a calling placed on the life of every person who identifies with Jesus Christ by faith. And it's a phrase that many of us in the, in the comfortable Western evangelical church need to wrestle with because this verse presents a biblical tension that takes us out of our comfort zone. What do I mean by that? For most of us in the Western church, we've bought into a very disturbing lie. And that lie is this, that acceptance of the gospel and surrender to Jesus Christ means that not only are we afforded a mansion in glory and eternal blessings, but that our union with Christ gives us protection in this world from a life of suffering and burden. Many of us have believed that lie ever since we came to faith in Christ. And it's a subtle lie because it often comes across like this. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Is that true? It's absolutely true. Does God love you and does God have a plan for your life that... That is wonderful and that is full of blessing, absolutely. But not everything that happens in our life as followers of Jesus Christ is wonderful, right? Sometimes God loves you and God has a difficult plan for your life. But it's still going to be wonderful. And yet we seem to believe that just an acceptance of Jesus means not only some sort of promise of eternal blessing, but, but some sort of protection in this world from any form of suffering, especially unjust suffering at the hands of non-Christians. Christians aren't supposed to suffer. Christ came to give us the abundant life, right? Didn't Jesus say in John 10, I came to give you life and give it to you abundantly? And yet when you're working in a workplace where people don't, don't appreciate you, it's hard, to, it's hard to claim your best life now in the abundance of Christ. When you live in a neighborhood with a neighbor who doesn't affirm your biblical values and mocks and ridicules you, it's hard to say, well, I'm just living the abundant life. Physical suffering in the contemporary evangelical church is often seen as evidence of a lack of faith or that you've done something wrong for which God is punishing you. 
and therefore personal inconvenience, ridicule, and condemnation from a lost world is sometimes viewed as either a sign of personal compromise or a weakness within your faith. And all of this is grounded in the heresy that God's will is that Christians are not required to suffer, especially unjust suffering at the hands of a lost culture. And the problem with this lie is twofold. Number one, the very clear teaching of Scripture. And number two, the testimony of tens of thousands of brothers and sisters in Christ in church history who've been martyred specifically for their faithfulness in Jesus Christ. The idea that that we are saved to some sort of personal prosperity and a life free of ridicule and suffering just doesn't jive with Christian experience or God's Word. Do you remember Stephen in Acts chapter 6? Do you remember what happened to him? Stephen was labeled as a man who was full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom and a man who was full of faith. There was no faith lacking in Stephen whatsoever. He was probably one of the most godly Christians in the early New Testament church. One of the reasons why he was chosen as one of the first seven to serve in the church. He faithfully declared the gospel in Acts chapter 6 in one of the most biblical examples of obedience ever recorded. And what was Stephen's earthly reward for being biblically faithful? He was pelted with stones until he died. That was his earthly reward. I remember seeing in 2015 as kind of the culture in the evangelical world was stunned when when there was a release of a video in which the Islamic State had had captured uh, over a dozen followers of Jesus Christ in Egypt and they marched them out on the shore of a beach with hoods over their heads and then they proceeded to behead every single one of those people simply because they were living in a in a very difficult culture with as public followers of Jesus Christ. You see, the history of the church and the testimony of God's Word doesn't give us the option that somehow or another you and I are free from suffering injustice in this world. Peter makes it clear in this passage that God calls us as believers to endure suffering and persecution and ridicule and much more than that because of our identification with Him. We need to remember that there's a spiritual war of ideologies in our world and those who oppose the gospel, those who oppose what we believe, will react harshly and sometimes even violently against our worldview. And we shouldn't be surprised. As a matter of fact, Peter will later on say, brothers, you shouldn't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. Don't be surprised about it. And it is not evidence that God has lost control in that moment. Because this is to what we have been called. This verse, 1 Peter 2.21, saying that you've been called to suffering because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow, falls in the, flies in the face of two dominant ideologies that, perm, that currently permeate the evangelical church. And the first of those is the heresy of the prosperity gospel that says that God's will for you is to live a life of abundant prosperity. And that suffering is seen as a lack of faith. This verse flies right in the face of that. And the other is the idol of political power that says that what we need is more political clout. What we need is more more personal power in the halls of government. Because if we had that, we wouldn't have to suffer as Christians. And we forget that it's part of God's will for us is that we suffer. 
We see the summons of suffering. But not only do we see the summons to suffering, but we also see the grace of suffering. We see the grace of suffering in verses 19 and 20. He says, This is a gracious thing. When, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. What credit is it if you sin and are beaten for it and you endure? In other words, he says, if you do something wrong in your workplace or in the culture, if you break a law and you have to go to court and you have to pay a fine or you have to spend some time in jail, you can't sit there and go, well, I'm just suffering because I'm a Christian. No, you broke the law. You did something that was against the policy. What good is it if you suffer for doing wrong? But look at what he says here. When you do good and suffer for it and you endure This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Two times Peter says, it is a gracious thing for believers in Christ to uh, to suffer injustice for doing good. And what does he mean by grace? Well, the grace is not something that's tied to our personal salvation. It doesn't mean that somehow we are made more righteous before God by willingly choosing suffering. In other words, it doesn't mean that God saves us because we are suffering. The phrase gracious thing comes from the Greek word chorus, and it carries with it a sense of divine approval or blessing. In essence, Peter is saying that divine approval is given to those who cherish Christ above all, even when doing so brings about the scorn or the unjust treatment of others. There's a certain approval or blessing that comes over those who willingly endure persecution and marginalization for doing good and doing right. There's a certain approval that comes over that. There's a certain blessing and commendation that can only be found in obedience to God and His purposes in life. And that's why he says it's not just Christians that find God's grace through unjust suffering, but they discover God's grace when they suffer being mindful of God, when they keep in mind who God is. Now, we'll talk in just a moment about the secret of enduring unjust suffering, but let us focus here and see that one of the ways that God evidences His grace in the life of a Christian is through the reality of suffering for our faith. Let me say that again. One of the ways that God evidences His grace in the life of a believer is through the reality of suffering for our faith in Him. And for this reason, we don't need to cower or stop speaking of Jesus whenever we experience pushback or ridicule or verbal assault from those who don't know Him. And yet, how often do we do that? As soon as it gets hard to give testimony to a biblical faith, most of the time we say, well, you know what? I'm just going to keep silent. Because I'd rather keep silent than get in trouble. I'd rather keep silent than be targeted. So I'm just going to be silent. I'm going to stop telling my neighbor about Jesus. I'm going to stop talking about what I believe as a follower of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, when when everybody's sitting around and they're talking about cultural things at lunch and everybody's sharing what's going on and and they're sharing what they believe, I'm not going to say, well, you know, as a follower of Jesus, this is what the Bible tells me because as soon as I do that, they're going to ridicule me, they're going to turn me off, they're not going to listen to me. Nope. We need to understand there is a grace that comes to us as followers of Jesus Christ that only comes, a certain sense of approval or blessing that only comes as we endure injustice for our faith. You see, one of the natural human reactions that we have when we're treated unjustly is to fight for our personal rights. 
We live in a nation, after all, that was founded on the principle of individual freedom. We have freedom of speech as long as that speech is not slanderous or demoralizing of other people. We have freedom to express our religious faith. And we should be free to believe what we want to believe about Christ. And so oftentimes when we are pushed against for being followers of Jesus Christ, our first reaction is to resort to our fundamental American freedoms. And we often will resort first to what the Constitution of the United States provides for us before actually looking internally to the Spirit of God and the Word of God. And so we might fight and say, well, I have the right to believe what I want to believe. We might actually fight those who oppose us. God's God's plan for us as followers of Jesus Christ is not to fight against those who oppose us, and it's not to flee against those who oppose us. It's to stay steadfast and sure in the midst of suffering. Paul said in Romans chapter 3, We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering. We find joy in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. How do we have hope? We have hope when we endure in suffering because that endurance produces character and that character builds hope in the Christian life. How do we live as agents of kingdom exile with living hope, we do so through the reality of suffering in this world. James wrote, this passage makes me mad every time I read it. James wrote in James 1, 2 through 4, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials of various kind. Count it all joy. So when you're you're ridiculed because of your faith in Jesus Christ, take joy. That's hard to do. Count it all joy. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You see, when we face pushback for our biblical convictions, we should not resort to the idea that somehow or another we are out of God's will. And we should not automatically pull out our copy of the Constitution and fight for our rights to believe what we believe. Instead, we need to embrace suffering as a season of grace and growth from God. Which leads us to the third truth, and that is we need to remember the example of the Savior. Not only do we need to see the summons of the follower of Jesus Christ to suffering, and not only do we need to see that there's a a certain sense of grace or approval that's only going to come to us when we endure suffering for our faith, but we do so by looking to the example of our Savior. Verses 21 through 23, To this you've been called, for Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Peter says that we are specifically called to suffer injustice because you and I have placed our faith in a Savior who accomplished the eternal plan of God for our salvation through the path of injustice. We are called to suffer injustice specifically because we have united ourselves to a Savior who saved us through injustice, through the path of injustice. And so before you and I as followers of Jesus begin to decry how unfair this world is treating us as Christians, let's stop for a few moments and let's read Matthew chapter 26 and 27. And let's see how the religious leaders slapped Jesus in the face and spit on him because he wouldn't renounce that he was from God. 
The next time we're tempted to, to complain about our neighbor and how rude our neighbor is to us specifically because we're Christians, let's immerse ourselves in Luke chapter 22 and 23 and read how Jesus was unjustly accused by blasphemy by the very people who should have recognized who he really was. Let's read in the Gospels how the Roman soldiers whom Jesus died to save beat him repeatedly with lashes from a Roman whip and knit together a crown of six-inch thorns that they beat down on his head while mocking him and calling him the king of the Jews. And let's remember how they nailed him to a crossbeam and lifted him up to a cross to spend the next few hours dying of suffocation and struggling to breathe by pushing up on the nails within his hands and feet. And let's read how those around the cross ridiculed him and mocked him and spit on him. Let's just stop for a few moments as followers of Jesus Christ and let's look to Calvary. And what will we see? We will see the almighty, majestic Son of God, the one who spoke this world into existence the one who upholds the entire universe by the power of His Word. And there, on Calvary, we will see the broken, bleeding, and crucified body of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we will see how far men are really willing to go to reject the gospel and reject God. And when we see that, let's start complaining to God because somebody made fun of us for being a Christian. When we see the depths of suffering that the Lord Jesus endured to glorify God and accomplish His plan of salvation, it begs us this question. If it was God's plan to submit His only beloved Son to that kind of torture and shame to accomplish His plan, what in the world makes you think that somehow you and I are immune to shame, ridicule, and justice from the hands of people who don't fear God? If God was willing to submit His Son to that kind of ridicule and torture, why in the world would we believe a damning lie that somehow or another we are immune to suffering as followers of Jesus Christ? Peter says in verse 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Jesus didn't choose to trade verbal joust with the very people that God had sent him to save. Jesus had the power in one swift second. Let's not forget this. He had the power in one swift second on the cross to call down legions of angels at His defense and to summarily wipe out every person who had ever spoken a word against Him. All He had to do was say the word and it would happen. And yet He didn't do it. Jesus didn't fight for His personal rights. Instead, as Philippians chapter 2 says, He laid down those rights to become a servant of God. You see, suffering for Christ in this life is inevitable because we are connected to a Savior who suffered on our behalf and in doing so leaves us an example to follow. Let's follow the example of our Savior. And then let's understand the secret to enduring suffering. The secret to endurance. How do we endure then? If this is what we've been called to, and let me just make it clear, it has become very hard to be a follower of Jesus Christ in the Western culture it's going to become increasingly harder to be a follower of Jesus Christ in the next 10 to 20 years. And it doesn't matter who's in the White House and who's in Congress and what laws they are passing. It's going to become increasingly harder to identify with Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, I'm under the firm conviction that one of the reasons why we continue to see decline in the American evangelical church 
and why 80% of churches are dying is because it's become increasingly harder and harder to identify with the person of Jesus Christ. And many people would rather follow the culture than they would to follow Christ. So how do we endure? If it's going to be harder, how do we endure? We follow the example of Jesus. Look at verse 23 again. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. What did he do? He continued to entrust himself to one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why? So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you have been healed. Since we know that suffering injustice is not only inevitable but part of God's calling, and since we have the best example for faithful endurance in the person of Jesus Christ, how do we respond? What's the, what's the secret to suffering as Christ suffered? Well, two things we see from this text. Number one, trust that God the Father will vindicate all injustice. Trust that God will vindicate all injustice. Peter says that while Christ was suffering false accusations and political intimidation, and even extreme torture, he didn't threaten, he didn't seek personal vengeance, he didn't revile others. Instead, he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. What this means was that Jesus Christ knew that ultimately all justice is in the hands of the Lord. Our God is a God of justice. And one day, God in heaven will ensure, listen carefully, that every act of injustice ever perpetrated in this world will be judged with vengeance and wrath. Our God has made that clear. That every single act of injustice in this world will one day be punished with vengeance. And God will make sure that every false accusation will be accounted for. And He will make sure that every unjust blow to those who are followers of Jesus Christ will be returned. There is no injustice that escapes the eyes of our sovereign King of heaven. And we need to remember as followers of Jesus Christ that justice delayed is not the same thing as justice denied. Right now God in heaven is delaying His justice on the evil of sinners because He is patient and desires all people to have a chance to hear the gospel and repent. One of those people who was one of the greatest perpetrators of injustice upon Christians was the Apostle Saul, or was the, was the Pharisee Saul, who later heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and became one of the most ardent defenders of the Christian faith. God is patient with us, not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to eternal life. And sometimes people come through to eternal life by watching the unjust suffering of followers of Jesus. We need to understand as Christians that our ultimate justice doesn't begin in the halls of human courts or in the lobbies of the Capitol building. And we need to be agents of moral influence and use all the means at our disposal as God's people to overcome being targets of injustice. But we know that those moments don't go, when mom, those moments don't go our way, it's not a sign that we need to panic, but we need to trust Him who will vindicate all injustice. But secondly... We need to remember, as Jesus did, the greater purpose of it all. We need to remember the greater purpose of it all. That's where verse 24 comes in. It says that He Himself bore our sins in His body so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. What does this verse have to do with suffering and justice? It has everything to do with it. Because Peter is reminding us that our God in heaven took the ultimate act of injustice 
the murder of the Son of God. God took that act of injustice and used it as the ultimate object of His justice by using the cross as the instrument of our redemption. God chose what was an unjust act by sinful men to be the means by which He would demonstrate His wrath on your sin and my sin and purchase our salvation and forgiveness through the shed blood of His Son. And we shouldn't look at that and think that somehow or another the cross was God's plan B, that that somehow or another God just made the best of a bad situation. The cross of Christ was God's plan from the foundation of the world. And God used this this eternally terrible thing that happened to His Son to be the thing that we place our faith and trust in and by which we are saved. Jesus understood that He endured every single blow from from the whip and every single pounding of the nails because God had a greater purpose in His suffering. Joseph told his brothers, years after he saw them again after they had sold him into slavery. He told his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good to bring about the salvation of many. So how did Jesus endure suffering at the hands of evil men? He did so by remembering the greater purpose that was at stake, and that was the salvation of the world. And in the same way, you and I need to understand that there are greater purposes at stake than our personal comfort or convenience. The the redemption of all mankind is at stake. God has a greater purpose in our lives than just our personal prosperity and preservation. His greater purpose is to demonstrate His glory through the church so that as Peter said just a few verses earlier, that we as His chosen people will proclaim His excellencies as one who called Him out of darkness into His marvelous light. What's the secret to endurance? Number one, trust that God will vindicate all injustice. And number two, remember when you're going through unjust suffering, God has a greater purpose. God's going to use what you're going through to lead others to faith in Him. In closing, I want us to see this verse in verse 25. It says, not only by, your wound, by His wounds have you been healed, but you were strained like sheep, but you've now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Have you found yourself recently in a place where you feel far disconnected from God? Have you found yourself in a place where you're tired of running in the wrong direction? Have you found yourself in a place where you feel like life just isn't quite what it needs to be? And one of the reasons why is because you're not connected to the shepherd and the overseer of your soul. Religion's not going to fix that. Um, working harder is not going to fix that. The only thing that's going to fix that is surrendering to the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Right now there are people in here who are probably very religious, very good people. You do a lot of good things, but the reality of it is is that you've never truly surrendered your heart and life to the Lord Jesus Christ. you never truly trusted in what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And today you need to become a follower of Him. In just a moment we're going to offer a an invitation, a song, an opportunity to respond to the gospel this morning. So if you're here today and you realize that one of the reasons why you, you, you struggle with injustice in this world is because you've never truly surrendered yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ, we want to give you an opportunity to trust the gospel and to be saved today. Would you just bow your heads and close your eyes? and Let me lead us in prayer as we, as we transition to this time of invitation.
And maybe today you find yourself wondering what in the world all this is about, suffering for your Christian faith, because you've never suffered anything for your faith. And maybe the reason why you've never suffered anything for your faith is because your faith never cost you anything. You're just following Jesus when it's convenient. But you're not really following the Lord. Maybe today you just need to lay down your, your, your arms and you need to say, you know what, Jesus, I want to surrender to you and I want to surrender to your purposes. I'm not, I'm not signing up to, to suffer, but I want to be a follower of you. I want to be the real deal. I want, to, I want to know that I know that I know that I belong to you. I don't want to guess anymore. I don't want to question. I want to know that you've saved me. And so in just a moment as we sing, if that's you and you need to become a Christian, you need to submit your life to the Lord, we want to give you the opportunity to do that. Maybe you need to come today because as a follower of Jesus, you, you've been suffering some injustice lately. It's cost you something to be a follower of Him and you just need to pray today for endurance and you need to pray for eyes that trust your Heavenly Father and His plan and purpose in your life. Whatever it is, you come as the Lord leads you. Father in Heaven, we thank You for this Word. God, we thank You that You are the God of all justice and that no matter what happens in our lives, we can surrender to you knowing that, God, you see it all and that you have a greater plan. So help us to trust in that today. For anyone here today that needs to trust in your plan of salvation, God, give them the courage and the boldness and the conviction to do so. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? Would you sing this song and respond as the Lord leads you today?